0: to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, part two, chapters nine and 10. In the previous chapters, Professor Aranax was intercepted by Captain Nemo just before his planned escape. In the following chapters, the Nautilus explores a dormant underwater volcano to gather resources for its operations. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do Chapter 9 A Vanished Continent The next morning, the 19th of February, I saw the Canadian enter my room. I expected this visit. He looked very disappointed. Well, sir, said he, Well, Ned, fortune was against us yesterday. Yes, the captain must needs stop exactly at the hour we intended to leave his vessel. Yes, he had business in his banks. His banks? Yes, Ned, he had business at his bankers his bankers, or rather his banking house, by that I mean the ocean, where his riches are safer than in the chests of the state. I then related to the Canadian the incidents of the preceding night, hoping to bring him back to the idea of not abandoning the captain but my recital had no other result than an energetically expressed regret from Ned that he had not been able to take a walk on the battlefield of Figo on his own account. However, said he, all is not ended. It is only a blow of the harpoon last. Another time we must succeed." And tonight, if necessary. In what direction is the Nautilus going? I asked. I do not know, replied Ned. Well, at noon, we shall see the point. The Canadian returned to Concierge as soon as I was dressed. I went into the saloon. The compass was not reassuring. The course of the Nautilus was south-southwest. We were turning our backs on Europe. I waited with some impatience till the ship's place was pricked on the chart. At about half past eleven, the reservoirs were emptied. And our vessel rose to the surface of the ocean. I rushed towards the platform. Ned Land had preceded me. No more land in sight. Nothing but an immense sea. Some sails on the horizon, doubtless those going to San Roque in search of favorable winds for doubling the Cape of Good Hope. The weather was cloudy, a gale of wind was preparing. Ned raved and tried to pierce the cloudy horizon. He still hoped that behind all that fog stretched the land he so longed for. At noon, the sun showed itself for an instant, the second profited by this brightness to take its height. Then, the sea becoming more billowy, we descended and the panel closed. An hour after, upon consulting the chart, I saw the position of the Nautilus, was marked at 16 degrees 17 feet longitude and 33 degrees 22 feet latitude, at 150 leagues from the nearest coast. There was no means of flight, and I leave you to imagine the rage of the Canadian when I informed him of our situation. For myself, I was not particularly sorry. I felt lightened of the load which had oppressed me, and was able to return with some degree of calmness to my accustomed work. That night, about 11 o'clock, I received a most unexpected visit from Captain Nemo. He asked me very graciously if I felt fatigued from my watch of the preceding night. I answered in the negative. Then, Monsieur Alanax, I propose a curious excursion. Propose, Captain? You have hitherto only visited the submarine depths by daylight, under the brightness of the sun. Would it suit you to see them in the darkness of the night? Most willingly. I warn you, the way will be tiring. We shall have far to walk, and must climb a mountain the roads are not well kept what you say captain only heightens my curiosity i am ready to follow you come then sir we will put on our driving dresses arrived at the robing room i saw that neither of my companions nor any of the ship's crew were to follow us on this excursion. Captain Nemo had not even proposed my taking with me, either Ned or Concierge. In a few moments, we had put on our diving dresses. They placed on our backs the reservoirs, abundantly filled with air, but no electric lamps were prepared. I called the captain's attention to the fact. "'They will be useless,' he replied. I thought I had not heard aright, but I could not repeat my observation, for the captain's head had already disappeared in its metal case. I finished harnessing myself. I felt them put on an iron-pointed stick into my hand, and some minutes later, after going through the usual form, we set foot on the bottom of the Atlantic at a depth of a hundred and fifty fathoms. Midnight was near. The waters were profoundly dark. But Captain Nemo pointed out in the distance a reddish spot, a sort of large light shining brilliantly about two miles from the Nautilus. What this fire might be, what could feed it, why and how it lit up the liquid mass, I could not say. In any case, It did light our way, vaguely, it is true, but I soon accustomed myself to the peculiar darkness, and I understood, under such circumstances, the uselessness of the Rumkorf apparatus. As we advanced, I heard a kind of pattering above my head. The noise redoubling, sometimes producing a continual shower. I soon understood the cause. It was rain falling violently and crisping the surface of the waves. Instinctively, the thought flashed across my mind that I should be wet through. By the water. In the midst of the water i could not help laughing at the odd idea but indeed in the thick diving dress the liquid element is no longer felt and one only seems to be in an atmosphere somewhat denser than the terrestrial one nothing more after an hour's walk The soil became stony, medusae, microscopic crustaceae, and peninsulas lit it slightly with their phosphorescent gleam. I caught a glimpse of a piece of stone covered with millions of zoophytes and masses of seaweed. My feet often slipped upon the sticky carpet of seaweed. "'and without my iron-tipped stick, I should have fallen more than once. "'In turning round, I could see the whitish lantern of the Nautilus beginning to pale in the distance. "'But the rosy light which guided us increased and lit up the horizon.' The presence of this fire underwater puzzled me in the highest degree. Was I going towards a natural phenomenon as yet unknown to the savants of the Earth? Or even, for this thought crossed my brain, had the hand of man aught to do with this conflagration? Had he fanned this flame? Was I to meet in these depths companions and friends of Captain Nemo, whom he was going to visit, and whom, like him, led his strange existence? Should I find down there a whole colony of exiles, whom, weary of the miseries of this earth, had sought and found independence in the deep ocean. All these foolish and unreasonable ideas pursued me, and in this condition of mind, overexcited by the succession of wonders continually passing before my eyes, I should not have been surprised to meet at the bottom of the sea one of those submarine towns which Captain Nemo dreamed. Our road grew lighter and lighter. The white glimmer came in rays from the summit of a mountain about 800 feet high. But what I saw was simply a reflection, developed by the clearness of the water. The source of this inexplicable light was a fire on the opposite side of the mountain. In the midst of this stony maze furrowing the bottom of the Atlantic, Captain Nemo advanced without hesitation. He knew this dreary road. Doubtless he had often travelled over it, And could not lose himself i followed him with unshaken confidence he seemed to me like a genie of the sea and as he walked before me i could not help admiring his stature which was outlined in black on the luminous horizon It was one in the morning when we arrived at the first slopes of the mountain, but to gain access to them, we must venture through the difficult paths of a vast copse. Yes, a copse of dead trees, without leaves, without sap. Trees petrified by the action of the water, and here and there, overtopped, by gigantic pines it was like a coal pit still standing holding by the roots to the broken soil and whose branches like fine black paper cuttings showed distinctly on the watery ceiling picture to yourself a forest in the hearts hanging on to the sides of the mountain, but a forest swallowed up. The paths were encumbered with seaweed and fucus, between which grovelled a whole world of crustacea. I went along, climbing the rocks, striding over extended trunks, breaking the sea bindweed which hung from one tree to the other, and frightening the fishes which flew from branch to branch. Pressing onward, I felt no fatigue. I followed my guide, who was never tired. What a spectacle. How can I express it? How paint the aspect of those woods and rocks in this medium? Their underparts dark and wild, the upper colored with red tints by that light which the reflecting powers of the water doubled. We climbed rocks which fell directly after with gigantic bounds the low growling of an avalanche. To right and left ran long, dark galleries where sight was lost. Here opened vast glades which the hand of man seemed to have worked, and I sometimes asked myself if some inhabitant of these submarine regions would not suddenly appear to me. But Captain Nemo was still mounting. I could not stay behind. I followed boldly. My stick gave me good help. A false step would have been dangerous on the narrow passes, sloping down to the sides of the gulfs as I walked with firm step, without feeling any giddiness. Now I jumped a crevice, the depth of which would have made me hesitate had it been among the glaciers of the land. Now I ventured on the unsteady trunk of a tree, thrown across from one abyss to the other, without looking under my feet having only eyes to admire the wild sights of this region. There, monumental rocks, leaning on their regularly cut bases, seemed to defy all laws of equilibrium. From between their stony knees, trees sprang, like a jet under heavy pressure, and upheld others which upheld them. Natural towers, large scarps, cut perpendicularly, like a curtain inclined at an angle which the laws of gravitation could never have tolerated in terrestrial regions. Two hours after quitting the Nautilus, we had crossed the line of trees and a hundred feet above our heads rose the top of the mountain, which cast a shadow on the brilliant irradiation of the opposite slope. Some petrified shrubs ran fantastically here and there, Fishes got up under our feet like birds in the long grass. The massive rocks were rent with impenetrable fractures, deep grottoes, and unfathomable holes at the bottom of which formidable creatures might be heard moving. My blood curdled when I saw enormous antennae blocking my road, or some frightful claw closing with a noise in the shadow of some cavity. Millions of luminous spots shone brightly in the midst of the darkness. They were the eyes of giant crustaceae crouched in their holes, giant lobsters setting themselves up like haliburdias, and moving their claws with the clicking sound of pincers, titanic crabs pointed like a gun on its carriage, and frightful-looking polyps interweaving their tentacles like a living nest of serpents. We had now arrived on the first platform, where other surprises awaited me. Before us lay some picturesque ruins, which betrayed the hand of man, and not that of the Creator. There were vast heaps of stone, amongst which might be traced the vague and shadowy form of castles and temples clothed with a world of blossoming zoophytes, and over which, instead of ivy, seaweed and fucus threw a thick vegetable mantle. But what was this portion of the globe which had been swallowed by cataclysms? Who had placed those rocks and stones like cromlocks of prehistoric times? Where was I? Whither had Captain Nemo's fancy hurried me? I would fain have asked him, not being able to. I stopped him. I seized his arm. But shaking his head and pointing to the highest point of the mountain, he seemed to say, Come, come along. Come higher. I followed, and in a few minutes I'd climbed to the top, which for a circle of ten yards commanded the whole mass of rock. I looked down the side we had just climbed. The mountain did not rise more than seven or eight hundred feet above the level of the plain but on the opposite side, it had commanded from twice that height the depths of this part of the Atlantic. My eyes ranged far over a large space lit by violent vulguration. In fact, the mountain was a volcano. At fifty feet above the peak, in the midst of a rain of stones and scori, a large crater was vomiting forth torrents of lava, which fell in a cascade of fire into the bosom of the liquid mass. Thus situated, this volcano lit the lower plain like an immense torch, even to the extreme limits of the horizon. I said that the submarine crater threw up lava, but no flames. Flames require oxygen of the air to feed upon and cannot develop underwater, but streams of lava having in themselves the principles of their incandescence can attain a white heat, fight vigorously against the liquid elements, and turn it into vapor by contact. Rapid currents bearing all these gases in diffusion and torrents of lava slid to the bottom of the mountain like an eruption of vesuvius on another terra del greco there indeed under my eyes ruined destroyed lay a town its roofs open to the sky its temples fallen its arches dislocated its columns lying on the ground from which one would still recognize the massive character of Tuscan architecture. Further on, some remains of gigantic aqueducts. Here, the high base of an Acropolis, with the floating outline of a Parthenon. There, traces of a key as if an ancient port had formerly abduted on the borders of the ocean, and disappeared with its merchant vessels and its war galleys. Farther on again, long lines of sunken walls and broad, deserted streets. A perfect Pompeii escaped beneath the waters, such was the sight that captain nemo brought before my eyes where was i where was i i must know at any cost i tried to speak but captain nemo stopped me by gesture and picking up a piece of chalk stone advanced to a rock of black basalt and traced the one word Atlantis. What a light shone through my mind. Atlantis, the Atlantis of Plato, that continent denied by Origen and Humboldt, who placed its disappearance amongst the legendary tales. I had it there now before my eyes, bearing upon it the unexceptionable testimony of its catastrophe. The region thus engulfed was beyond Europe, Asia, and Libya. Beyond the columns of Hercules, where those powerful people, the Atlantides, lived against whom the first wars of ancient Greeks were waged. Thus, led by the strangest destiny, I was treading underfoot the mountains of this continent, touching with my hand those ruins a thousand generations old and contemporary with the geological epochs i was walking on the very spot where the contemporaries of the first man had walked whilst i was trying to fix in my mind every detail of this grand landscape captain nemo remained motionless as if petrified in mute ecstasy leaning on a mossy stone Was he dreaming of those generations long since disappeared? Was he asking them the secret of human destiny? Was it here this strange man came to steep himself in historical recollections and live again this ancient life? He who wanted no modern one What would I not have given to know his thoughts, to share them, to understand them? We remained for an hour at this place, contemplating the vast plains under the brightness of the lava, which was sometimes wonderfully intense rapid tremblings ran along the mountain caused by internal bubblings deep noise distinctly transmitted through the liquid medium were echoed with magnetic grandeur at this moment the moon appeared through the mass of the waters and through her pale rays on the buried continent. It was but a gleam, but what an indescribable effect. The captain rose, cast one last look on the immense plain, and then bade me follow him. We descended the mountain rapidly, and the mineral forests once passed, I saw the lantern of the Nautilus, shining like a star. The captain walked straight to it, and we got on board as the first rays of light whitened the surface of the ocean. Chapter 10 The Submarine Coal Mines The next day, the 20th of February, I awoke very late. The fatigues of the previous night had prolonged my sleep until 11 o'clock. I dressed quickly and hastened to find the course the Nautilus was taking. The instruments showed it to be still towards the south, with a speed of 20 miles an hour, and a depth of 50 fathoms. The species of fishes did not differ here from those already noticed. There were rays of giant size five yards long, and endowed with great muscular strength, which enabled them to shoot above the waves. Sharks of many kinds, amongst others, one fifteen feet long, with triangular sharp teeth, and whose transparency rendered it almost invisible in the water. Amongst bony fish, Concier noticed some about three yards long, armed at the upper jaw with a piercing sword. Others, bright-colored creatures, known in the time of Aristotle by the name of Sea Dragon, which are dangerous to capture on account of the spikes on their back. About four o'clock, the soil, generally composed of a thick mud mixed with petrified wood, changed by degrees, and it became more stony, and seemed strewn with conglomerate and pieces of basalt with a sprinkling of lava. I thought that a mountainous region was succeeding the Long Plains, and accordingly, after a few evolutions of the Nautilus, I saw the southerly horizon blocked by a high wall which seemed to close all exits. Its summit evidently passed the level of the ocean. It must be a continent, or at least an island. One of the canaries... Or of the Cape Verde Islands. The bearings not being yet taken, perhaps designedly, I was ignorant of our exact position. In any case, such a wall seemed to me to mark the limits of that Atlantis, of which we had, in reality, passed over only the smallest part. Much longer should I have remained at the window, admiring the beauties of the sea and sky, but the panels closed. At this moment, the Nautilus arrived at the side of this high, perpendicular wall. What it would do, I could not guess. I returned to my room. It no longer moved. I laid myself down with the full intention of waking after a few hours sleep, but it was 8 o'clock the next day when I entered the saloon. I looked at the manometer. It told me that the nautilus was floating on the surface of the ocean. Besides. I heard steps on the platform. I went to the panel. It was open, but instead of broad daylight, as I expected, I was surrounded by profound darkness. Where were we? Was I mistaken? Was it still night? No, not a star was shining and night had not that utter darkness. I knew not what to think when a voice said near me, Is that you, Professor? Ah, Captain, I answered. Where are we? Underground, sir. Underground? I exclaimed. "'and the Nautilus floating still. "'It always floats. "'But I do not understand. "'Wait a few minutes. "'Our lantern will be lit, "'and if you like light places, "'you will be satisfied.' "'I stood on the platform and waited. "'The darkness was so complete.' I could not even see Captain Nemo, but looking to the zenith, exactly above my head, I seemed to catch an undecided gleam, a kind of twilight filling our circular hole. At this instant, the lantern was lit, and its vividness dispelled the faint light. I closed my dazzled eyes for an instant, and then looked again. The Nautilus was stationary, floating near a mountain which was formed of a sort of key. The lake, then, supporting it was a lake imprisoned by a circle of walls, measured two miles in diameter and six in circumference. Its level, the manometer showed, could only be the same as the outside level, for there must be necessarily a communication between the lake and the sea. The high partitions leaning forward on their base grew into a vaulted roof bearing the shape of an immense funnel turned upside down the height being about five or six hundred yards. At the summit was a circular orifice, by which I had caught the slight gleam of light, evidently daylight. Where are we? I asked. In the very heart of an extinct volcano, the interior of which has been invaded by the sea after some great convulsion of the earth. Whilst you were sleeping, Professor, the Nautilus penetrated to this lagoon by a natural canal which opens about ten yards beneath the surface of the ocean. This is its arbor of refuge, a sure, commodious, and mysterious one sheltered from all gales. Show me, if you can, on the coasts of any of our continents or islands, a road which can give such perfect refuge from all storms." "'Certainly,' I replied. "'You are in safety here, Captain Nemo. Who could reach you in the heart of a volcano?' But did I not see an opening at its summit? Yes, its crater, formerly filled with lava, vapor, and flames, and which now gives entrance to the life-giving air we breathe. But what is this volcanic mountain? It belongs to one of the numerous islands with which the sea is strewn, To vessels a simple sandbank, to us an immense cavern. Chance led me to discover it, and chance served me well. But of what use is this refuge, Captain? The Nautilus wants no port. No, sir, but it wants electricity to make it move. And the wherewithal to make the electricity, sodium to feed the elements, coal from which to get the sodium, and a coal mine to supply the coal. And exactly on this spot, the sea covers entire forests embedded during the geological period, now mineralized and transformed into coal. For me, They are an inexhaustible mine. Your men follow the trade of miners here then, Captain. Exactly so. These mines extend under the waves like the mines of Newcastle. Here, in their diving dresses, pickaxe and shovel in hand, my men extract the coal which I do not even ask from the minds of the earth. When I burn this combustible for the manufacture of sodium, the smoke escaping from the crater of the mountain gives it the appearance of still being active. And we shall see your companions at work. No, not this time at least for I am in a hurry to continue our submarine tour of the Earth, so I shall content myself with drawing from the reserve of sodium I already possess. The time for loading is one day only, and we continue our voyage. So, if you wish to go over the cavern and make the round of the lagoon, you must take advantage of today, Monsieur Aranax. I thanked the captain and went to look for my companions who had not left their cabins. I invited them to follow me without saying where we were. They mounted the platform. Concier, who was astonished at nothing, seemed to look upon it as quite natural that he should wake under a mountain after having fallen asleep under the waves but Ned thought of nothing but finding whether the cavern had an exit. After breakfast, about ten o'clock, we went down onto the mountain. Here we are, once more on land, said Concier. I do not call this land, said the Canadian, and besides, we are not on it. But beneath it. Between the walls of the mountains and the waters of the lake lay a sandy shore, which, at its greatest breadth, measured 500 feet. On this soil, one might easily make the tour of the lake, but the base of the high partition was stony ground, with volcanic locks and enormous pumice stones lying in picturesque heaps. All these detached masses, covered with enamel, polished by the action of the subterraneous fires, shone resplendent by the light of our electric lamps. The mica dust from the shore, rising under our feet flew like a cloud of sparks the bottom rose sensibly now and we soon arrived at long circaceous slopes or inclined planes which took us higher by degrees but we were obliged to walk carefully among these conglomerates bound by no cement the feet Slipping on the glassy crystal, felspar, and quartz. The volcanic nature of this enormous excavation was confirmed on all sides, and I pointed it out to my companions. Picture yourself, said I, what this crater must have been when filled with boiling lava. And when the level of the incandescent liquid rose to the orifice of the mountain, as though melted on the top of a hot plate. I can picture it perfectly, said Concier. But sir, will you tell me why the great architect had suspended operations, and how it is that the furnace is replaced? By the quiet waters of the lake. Most probably, Concier, because some convulsion beneath the ocean produced that very opening which has served as a passage for the Nautilus. Then the waters of the Atlantic rushed into the interior of the mountain, There must have been a terrible struggle between the two elements. A struggle which ended in the victory of Neptune. But many ages have run out since then, and the submerged volcano is now a peaceable grotto. Very well, said Netland. I accept the explanation, sir, but... In our own interest, I regret that the opening of which you speak was not made above the level of the sea." But, friend Ned, said Concier, if the passage had not been under the sea, the Nautilus could not have gone through it. We continued to ascend. The steps became more and more perpendicular and narrow. Deep excavations, which were obliged to cross, cut them here and there. Sloping masses had to be turned. We slid upon our knees and crawled along, but Concier's dexterity and the Canadian strength surmounted all obstacles. At a height of about thirty-one feet, the nature of the ground changed without becoming more practicable. To the conglomerate and the trachyte succeeded black basalt, the first dispread in layers of bubbles, the latter forming regular prisms, placed like a conylade supporting the spring of the immense vault. An admirable specimen of natural architecture. Between the blocks of basalt wound long streams of lava, long since grown cold, encrusted with bituminous rays, and in some places, they were spread like large carpets of sulfur. A more powerful light shone through the upper crater. Shedding a vague glimmer over these volcanic depressions, forever buried in the bosom of this extinguished mountain. But our upwards march was soon stopped at a height of about 250 feet by an impassable obstacle. There was a complete vaulted arch overhanging us. And our scent was changed to a circular walk at the last change vegetable life began to struggle with the mineral some shrubs and even some trees grew from the fractures of the walls i recognized some euphorbias with the caustic sugar coming from them heliotropes quite incapable of justifying their name, sadly drooped their clusters of flowers, both their color and perfume half gone. Here and there some chrysanthemums grew timidly at the foot of an aloe with long, sickly-looking leaves. But between the streams of lava I saw some little violets still slightly perfumed and I admitted that I smelt them with delight. Perfume is the soul of the flower and sea flowers have no soul. We had arrived at the foot of some sturdy dragon tree which had pushed aside the rocks with their strong roots when Nedland exclaimed, "Ah!" Sir, a hive, a hive. A hive? I replied, with a great gesture of incredulity. Yes, a hive, repeated the Canadian, and bees humming round it. I approached, and was bound to believe my own eyes. There at a hole, Bored in one of the dragon trees were some thousands of ingenious insects, so common in all the canaries, and whose produce is so much esteemed. Naturally enough, the Canadian wished to gather the honey, and I could not well oppose his wish. A quantity of dry leaves, mixed with sulphur, he lit with a spark from his flint. He began to smoke out the bees. The humming ceased by degrees, and the hive eventually yielded several pounds of the sweetest honey, with which Ned Land filled his harvest sack. When I have mixed this honey with the paste of the breadfruit, said he, I shall be able to offer you a succulent cake On my word, said Concier, it will be gingerbread. Never mind gingerbread, said I. Let us continue our interesting walk. At every turn of the path we were following, the lake appeared in all its length and breadth. The lantern lit up the whole of its peaceable surface which knew neither ripple nor wave. The Nautilus remained perfectly immovable. On the platform and on the mountain, the ship's crew were working like black shadows, clearly carved against the luminous atmosphere. We were now going round the highest crest of the first layer of rock, which upheld the roof. I then saw that the bees were not the only representatives of the animal kingdom in the interior of this volcano. Birds of prey hovered here and there in the shadows, or fled from their nests on the top of the rocks. There were sparrow hawks with white breasts and kestrels, and down the slopes scampered with their long legs. Several fine, fat bastards. I leave anyone to imagine the covetedness of the Canadian at the sight of this savory game, and whether he did not regret having no gun. But he did his best to replace the lead by stones, and after several fruitless attempts, he succeeded in wounding a magnificent bird. To say that he risked his life twenty times before reaching it is but the truth, but he managed so well that the creature joined the honey cakes in his bag. We were obliged now to descend towards the shore, the crest becoming impracticable. Above us, the crater seemed to gape like the mouth of a well. From this place, the sky could be clearly seen, and clouds dissipated by the west wind, leaving behind them, even on the summit of the mountain, their misty remnants, certain proof that they were only moderately high, for the volcano did not rise more than 800 feet above the level of the ocean. Half an hour after the Canadians' last exploit, we had regained the Inner Shore. Here the flora was represented by large carpets of marine crystal, like an umbelliferous plant very good to pickle, which also bears the name of pierstone and sea fennel. Concier gathered some bundles of it. As to the fauna, it might be counted by thousands of crustacea of all sorts – lobsters, crabs, spider crabs, chameleon shrimps, and a large number of shells, rockfish, and limpets. Three quarters of an hour later, we had finished our circuitous walk, and we were on board. The crew had just finished loading the sodium, and the Nautilus could have left that instant. But Captain Nemo gave no order. Did he wish to wait until night and leave the submarine passage secretly? Perhaps so. Whatever it might be, the next day, the Nautilus having left its port, steered clear of all land at a few yards beneath the waves of the Atlantic.